This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. In recent weeks, we've entered a world without professional sports and with millions of people forced to remain in their homes. In other words, we're in a time ripe for a weird Netflix show to become a cultural artifact. Enter Tiger King. The seven-part series showcases the bizarre world of the Americans who own big cats. In recent weeks, we've recorded some serious episodes and published dozens of thoughtful essays. Last week, you might have heard our episode that we did about live streaming, and we mentioned that we'll also have a discussion about churches that have more issues reaching some of their less digitally connected members, and that is still on the pipeline, and we will still make that happen. We decided to go with a bit more levity and discuss big cats with someone who studies them. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I am Ted Olson, editorial director at Christianity Today. Morgan, are you back in the office today? Are you you in our professional studio? Are you a... What do, you, what do they call it? Essential worker to to run the, the studio? Or are you doing this from home? I am today? in the recording bunker, nice. hanging out here at the office. Ted, let us chime in on the national conversation that we are having that has nothing to do with coronavirus and instead has to do with people who own tigers and lions and so forth yeah and it's you know i mean it's it is a show about people who who own big cats but it is also this kind of those who haven't seen it it's like this uh, murder mystery or you know like oh, it was a true crime not murder mystery true crime show you know in in the world of of, of big cat owners and and it's 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 a strange it's one of these strange multi-part documentaries that kind of catches people's imaginations is this our gut check morgan is this, this- is i would love to hear what you think so far well, so I'm super interested because so the whole idea here is that there's this guy with a bunch of big cats who Joe Exotic, Joe Exotic, <laughs> who then you know is involved in this kind of murder for hire with his uh, main kind of uh, critic slash rival. But when I first heard about it, I thought it was a totally different story about a guy who owned a bunch of big cats who who had tried to to kill a rival. And that that's another story that happened right here in our backyard by <gasps> uh, the Christian Today offices, <laughs> a town called Batavia. Not Tiger King Joe Exotic, but but a guy called Lauren Womack who's currently serving a long prison sentence for like almost exactly the same story that, that is being documented in this Netflix series where he had uh, tried to hire Hitman to kill a, a romantic rival and uh, is uh, uh, alleged to have uh, wow. to have killed somebody else. So I'm like, what is going on with these big cat owners? My attraction to this story is very different. I, you may know this, Morgan, some other people may know this, that I, I am a big, you know, animal, animal lover is this silly, silly word, but I am definitely drawn to large mammals. My Facebook photo ever since kind of Facebook became open to non-university students has been this image of me at the Brookfield Zoo with the line, the line that was was there at the time, looking through the glass at each other. 
I had this magazine at Christianity Today for a while called The Behemoth, where the whole point of that had kind of was about on wonder, you know, kind of the, the memory of it is that it was a science magazine, but it wasn't really a science magazine. It was it was this magazine about awe and wonder. And and part of that comes from the just the awe and wonder that I experienced with animals. I find animals just so they take me out of my where I am and remind me that there are there are big things out there. There there are really interesting things that are really unlike me, and I don't know everything. There is nothing more awe-inspiring for me than to look very closely at a lion's giant eyes. It's hard to come up with. I, I'm a professional word guy, but the words for the feeling that you that you have in that moment are hard to articulate. They're just there. It's it's scary and joyful uh, at the same time. Awe is probably the best word for it. I am interested in the people who are interested in that, but I'm, I'm mostly interested in in the animals themselves. So that's my that's my gut check and why. What Morgan, when you said, can we talk about Tiger King this week instead of uh, coronavirus? I said, yeah, of, of things that can kill you. I'm much more interested in talking about uh, big cats than uh, than small viruses. So let's let's take a break uh, and and talk about something completely different in nature that could that could uh, destroy us without warning. Ted, How, I think what's you, your gut check? Well, my gut check is first of all, I think you know that I got to meet some tigers recently. Yes. <laughs> I'll be honest, Ted. I didn't realize that I was like stepping into this larger industry when I was there, especially was one it, that had. Sorry. You, you should say where it was for one thing. I was outside of Chiang Mai in Thailand there at a place called Tiger Kingdom. And there are two different Tiger Kingdoms that are in Thailand. And I personally thought that it was something unique to Thailand. I will say, after listening to this episode yesterday, one of the people on there, his name is Doc something or other. He talks about how it's like several hundred dollars or maybe like more than $500 for this. Made me think... I should have paid to meet the tiger cubs when I was there. I paid to meet two different sizes of tiger because that's how they price them out there. But I did not pay for the baby cubs, um, though I did take really great video of them. And they really are as precious as you think that they are. Yeah, it was fascinating meeting them. I kind of wanted to do that because I did not actually think that that was something that you could do in the U.S. I had never really known that there was people who had exotic animal sanctuaries, farms. I don't know what you want to call them here in the U.S. I do like animals, though probably not as much as you do, Ted. But I remember growing up and watching shows like Kratz Creatures very religiously and being very into it then. I'm happy that we get to talk about this today because I know you get really excited about it, which makes me very excited about it too. Do you Kratz, want to say Kratz Creatures? This is this is where this is this is where I do feel more generation gapped with you, Morgan. I I, I hate to step fully into the uh, Mark Galley mode <laughs> here. Crash Creatures is truly a great show. I'm not quite old enough to be of the uh, Jack Hanna, but yes, uh, I, I associate Crash Creatures and Zabumafu and all those kinds of animal PBS shows. I'm kind of in, in, in the middle, in the in the gap. We didn't really have a Gen X animal show. We had, I guess, Animal Planet kind of came out around that time. But yep, that's good stuff. We should get to our guest. Oh, wait, we, but before we do, this is a podcast, Morgan. And we should, <laughs> we should we should share that the Netflix show, Tiger King, is not the only game in town. People who are podcast nuts may also be interested in a new podcast called Cat People, put out by folks at Long Reads. I've, I've dipped into that. It's about the same exact story. Oh, um, wow. But if you'd rather get your interesting true crime big cat fix over there, <laughs> uh, if you'd rather get that by audio rather than a Netflix uh, video, you have your choice these days. Both of these are, are running simultaneously. We're going to talk less about murder for higher plots and more about big mammals. So that's what I'm excited about. Yes. Tell us who our guest is, Ted. 
Our guest uh, today is Dr. Mike Mooring, who is professor of biology at Point Loma Nazarene University. I am so excited that he has done field studies of African antelope, bison here in North America, neotropical mammals in Costa Rica. He's doing some amazing stuff. Thanks, Mike. And and you were telling us in the lead up to the show that this is this is not your your lifelong passion. This is your third career. Yeah. Hi. Well, uh, thank you for having me uh, on your your cod past, as I told my family. Um, <laughs> I'm misspeaking. My my son said, "Dad, it'll be a disaster." So I, with that, in, you know, encouragement, wow. I thought I would, <laughs> you know, I would just go forward and take a leap of faith and you know walk in to the lion's den. But yeah, no, what I do is he's you know, been on for thirty seconds and he's made two animal puns, and so <laughs> I'm already loving this podcast. Yeah, so you know what I do now? I've been doing teaching at this small Christian liberal arts university in San Diego, in view of the ocean, by the way. It's beautiful. I've been to the campus. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's 22 years now, but this is not the first thing I was planning to do. You know, when I was younger, back in the 70s, I worked in the social justice movement with uh, Cesar Chavez and Farmworkers Union. And then I went on to study musical theater and, and drama in New York City. And then I somehow ended up in Colorado, I guess, because of uh, all the mountains, the Rocky Mountains and nature and so forth, going towards uh, for wildlife biology, really. This is a kind of uh, interesting how God leads us along various twists and turns and brings us to places we would never expect to be in. Well, it's great to have you here, Mike. I am wondering if we can just start this interview by you telling us about the first big cat that you saw up close and personal. Right. Yeah, uh, that's that's an interesting question because, you know, I, I must give the disclaimer that I'm not really a very good foil to Joe Exotic. I mean, I don't I don't really get into you know, small enclosures with large cats and, you know, I am down and shoot my pistol and snap my whip. But I know I do. Actually, I grew up in New York City. I remember very well going to the Central Park Zoo. My mom would take us to the Central Park Zoo, which is a tiny zoo. You know, when you're a kid, it, it seemed much bigger, of course. It's only seven acres. We loved it, you know, because it was something different from giant water bugs and big gray squirrels and pigeons and, you know, the normal wild urban wildlife that we were accustomed to. And I distinctly remember going into, I'm not sure what they called it, the big cat block, which was basically a cement bunker with lots of bars, you know, so this is the old school zoo version of this is this is how you, you know, you got dangerous animals, you stick them behind bars and, you know, to make it easy to clean up, you everything cement. So really, it was like, a, I mean, in retrospect, it was like, it was awful, you know, but as a kid, I just remember going in to that big room, there'd be lots of people and uh, it would just stink, you know, it was just this very pungent odor of, of big cat and they'd have the lions and whatever other cats they had there, I don't really remember. So that was my first <laughs> uh, up close and personal encounter with, because you you were right there, you know, I mean, they didn't have to separate you with moats and all the things they do now with naturalistic enclosures. You were just right there in that little little building. I have since that time done my dissertation work I did in Southern Africa, so I was there for, and then my postdoc in Southern Africa. So I was in Zimbabwe and South Africa and Namibia, had a trip to Kenya. So I've seen, you know, lions and cheetahs and leopards, and I haven't seen tigers because they're not found in Africa. But all those African, those African cats, you know, have had an opportunity to see a few in the States and some of the places I've worked. I got to tell you, though, that Honestly, in Costa Rica, we've been doing this work for, for 10 years and, you know, they're elusive. There's a reason why they're known as elusive mammals. You just don't see them. 
You know, they're either nocturnal or they're hiding. And so the way we actually do our research is we put up these, what they call camera traps. They're basically automatic cameras stick them on trails and so forth and got an infrared sensor. And they take, they take a picture or possibly a video when the animal passes by. Kind of indirectly though, uh, we've, we've seen a lot of cats in our cameras from Jaguar, which is the third largest big cat after tigers and African lions and the largest in, in the new world, all the way down to a kind of a house cat size spotted cat known as the Oncia. And we get six species in Costa Rica. So that really is where I really started to, to work on a professional level with some cats, including a big cat, which is very charismatic. You know, I mean, all I can say is that, you know, as I had opportunity to work in the wild, I just, you know, because my testimony is that I was really drawn to God through nature, not the other way around. I, you know, I, I saw God in nature and I came to, to Christ in, in Zimbabwe and I got married in Zimbabwe. Everything happened there because that's where I really felt the Lord speak to me and through his, through his creation and, and through these animals. Hmm. So, tell, a little, tell, tell us a little bit more about that. How, what, you know, what were you, this was while you were doing some of your doctoral work, was this postdoctoral? And, and Correct. How did, yeah. No, how did you find God as you were researching? Yeah. Uh, was it Impala that you were researching at the time? Is that right? That is, well, yes. So, so I actually started out with herbivores. So not at all a big cat carnivore guy. <laughs> Uh, some of my uh, colleagues would describe my study uh, animals as cat food because you know, <laughs> that's what they eat, you know, and uh, impala. Yeah. So impala are um, a great animal. They're very common, uh, they're medium sized antelope. And I was studying them because they have a very interesting behavior in so far as they groom themselves and one another and they do it to remove ticks. And so I was actually studying tick removal behavior, and that actually ended up being a kind of a, an ongoing project. Which, And then from there, I studied bison and elk and deer and moose, had a long-term study in Nebraska with, with bison. And then that ended, and it ended pretty suddenly. You know, it was like one year we were there over the summer, and they said, well, this is the last summer. Gosh, you know, what am I going to do next? And we had just started a course that went down to Costa Rica the literally that you know in May we went down to Costa Rica with this with this course had a fantastic experience with our students came back went to Nebraska for a study this is it for the study this this summer is the last and started to think wow is there anything we can do in Costa Rica and so we started talking with colleagues and the idea of well we could put up some trail cameras no one's done a study of mammals in this area before maybe that something we could do. So it literally started like that. That's amazing. Was it tricky to go from the herbivore? Well, I guess, I mean, there's probably some herbivores who would be in your elusive mammal category, right? Would, would uh, tapirs, tapirs, I assume, would be in that group? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, tapirs are uh, kind of a big player, uh, literally a big player. And, and those that are not, are not familiar with tapirs are related to, uh, to, uh, to rhinos um, and horses, and they are the largest uh, animal in South America, um, you know, the, the big guys can reach, you know, 600 pounds. I mean, they're just, they're just huge, but we get a lot of them in our cameras actually. So I'm curious about for you, like, is there, are you, are you still having these moments where your breath is taken away by an encounter with nature? Do you come, do you become more blase about it or where, where do those moments of joy and awe come for you now that you've been years and years into this? I, I call myself like an enthusiastic amateur birder. I'm, I'm not, I, I don't, 
keep lifeless and that kind of thing. I kind of know what I've seen, but I kind of forget what I've seen too. So it's cool because I see a beautiful bird and it's like, oh, what was that? Oh yeah, I've seen that one before. Yeah. And I think in the safari industry, they they call people that are just trying to check things off the list, they call them checkers, you know, and they just going along, okay, we want to see the big five. Okay, we've got the lion. Okay, we've got the elephant. Okay, we've got the rhino. Okay, check off the list. That's really not me. I mean, I remember my wife and I, going for a, a safari drive in Zimbabwe, and there really weren't any large animals out at all. And we ended up investigating dung beetles. And it was fascinating. It was fun. We just stopped, and there was, oh, there was a, some Ellie poop on the ground, and it's like dung beetles, and this is cool. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that there is a joy, like you say, and awe and wonder in, in wild animals just doing their thing and, and having the opportunity to kind of take a peek at, at what they're doing. I yeah. do want to bring this conversation back to the big cats because I'm personally curious oh, about right. them. And I'm curious. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, you've studied lots of different yeah. types of mammals. What really makes a big cat unique or special compared to other mammals? They are big, big cats as all cats. All Cats are really interesting because if you look at the, the world of the carnivores, most carnivores eat something besides meat. They'll, they'll eat some fruit or they'll eat some vegetation or, you know, they'll be more opportunistic. For example, dogs, you know, I mean, what do we feed dogs? We don't usually just feed them entirely meat. They get a lot of kibbles, which have grains and so forth. In them. But it isn't necessarily the best diet for them. But cats, they eat meat. They are meat eaters. They are obligate meat eaters. That's all they eat. And if you take a look at the inside of a, a cat's mouth, which you want to be careful about doing with when we're talking about the big cats, you can see all their teeth are meat eating teeth. You know, they've got the canines and the incisors and uh, sorry, the, the canines, the uh, premolars. And, you know, they're just completely and they've got huge jaws and their whole skull morphology is designed to to take a chomp out of another animal and that's also true of their you know their hunting strategy their uh, cats are primarily ambush predators you know there are exceptions of course cheetah are are probably the biggest exception because they they are ambush predators that then run really fast to get their prey and lions are kind of ambush predators but they work in in groups, cooperative hunters. Most of the other, there's 41 species of, of cats in the world, uh, of which three are considered the big cats, you know, tigers, and I guess five are, are in the panthera genus. So that would be tigers is the big one, the biggest, African lions, the second, jaguars, third, and then leopard, and then snow leopard. There's 41 smaller species as well. And they all are entirely meat eaters. They're ambush predators. They tend to have a solitary lifestyle. So that really makes them different from a lot of the animals that we think about that live in groups. Again, lions being the big exception to that. I was wondering too, if you could speak about maybe like what makes them unique from like an intelligence point of view too. So I mean, I think we have to be careful when we talk about animal intelligence because their intelligence is based on what they need to do to be successful in life. The kind of things that we would think of as, you know, indicating intelligence, kind of abstract kinds of calculations and being able to to remember and, and predict into the future and so forth. They have that, of course, superbly honed, but to accomplish their purpose, which is basically to, you know, to catch their prey, to be successful in defending their territory, which may be very large, and in mating and reproducing. So, you know, they their intelligence is, we would say they probably are. So think of the difference between a dog and a cat. If you think about a dog, you think about, oh, you know, dogs are really intelligent. We can teach them tricks, right? Have you ever tried to 
teach a cat a trick. <laughs> and we would, I mean, you could say, oh, those cats, they're just stupid. They can't, you know, you can't teach them a trick. Well, you know, there's there's a reason for that is because dogs have a social intelligence that cats don't have because they're not social. So basically their social intelligence is get away from me. <laughs> you know, yeah. Get away from me or kill you. Whereas, as you know, of course, canids in general and dogs specifically are brilliant at that social, that social interaction as our primates, you know, which is why we're so social as well. So, you know, it's a different kind of intelligence, they, they, but they certainly have that unique intelligence. And it's it's also kind of, I think, part of the allure, you know, why are people attracted to big cats? You know, and I think that from time immemorial, people have had this both primeval fear coupled with fascination with the big cats because they're they're mysterious. You know, they come and go. You don't know where they are. They're elusive. They kind of pop out of the night and then they disappear. We know they're extremely powerful. Tigers and lions and jaguars, extremely powerful. You know, there's all that kind of mixed into what attracts us and what makes them special, it kind of draws us to try to understand them better. And the fact is, for most of these, certainly the, the big cats have been better studied than, than many of the other cats, but we just don't know a lot about a lot of these species because they're elusive. We can't just follow them around in a Land Rover on the African savanna. They just slink into the woods and they're gone. So it's really been through a lot of new technology, radio tracking, uh, satellite collars and camera traps and so forth that we're, we're actually finally beginning to learn a little bit more about them. Is there, besides size, I mean, are there significant differences between like the big cats and some of the smaller cats, especially, you know, I'm thinking in, in Costa Rica where you are, you mentioned one of the, the smaller cats, but there's you know a, a number of smaller cat species. Are there behavior or what, what separate, I don't even know, what separates a big cat from a... Sure. So, I mean, the classic definition of what makes a big cat, meaning a panthera cat, Panthera tigris, Panthera, so Panthera leo and Panthera anca are the three big cats, tiger, lion, jaguar. And it's their ability to roar. They have this, it's sort of the hyoid apparatus, which is part of their vocal apparatus, enables them to roar. So your, your kitty at home is not going to be able to roar. It can purr, <laughs> right? Cats can purr and a jaguar can purr. Uh, and you would certainly want them to probably prefer them to purr than to than to roar. If let's do some gene splicing, verify <laughs> <laughs> people. But yeah. pan, so panthers panthers can can purr but not roar is is what you're saying, right? Correct, correct. So yeah. the roaring so, is, so the, is they're you, big, but they're not big cats. Yeah, they're big, but they're not in that big cat category that that can roar. Fascinating. So is that it? I mean, just it's. I mean, in terms of the idea. But there's there's not a lot of behavioral differences between the the roaring cats um, and the uh... you know, again big difference the big kind of unique thing in in the big cat world is the difference between lions and most of these other cats because they're so social and of course because they are found in large prides they don't really have fear of people or anything else and so it's fairly easy to observe them and so lots of studies have been done on them not so many studies done on jaguar because we just don't ever see them unless by chance or it's to kill your cow or something like that in which case most people ranchers response is to try to kill the jaguar so in terms of behavior what you're talking about is a solitary animal males or females roaming around very large ranges you know we're we're just trying to we're just starting uh including in our research but other people's as well trying to find out about when they're active 
and their activity cycles. And we can do that with the cameras because the cameras have a time and a date stamp on it. So we know when they're active, at least in front of the cameras, we assume that they're active uh, when they're not in front of the cameras. Many of them are nocturnal. Jaguar are, are actually a lot more diurnal than we previously thought. But they're roaming around. They are, you know, they're resting when they need to rest. They're looking for prey. And from time to time, the females come into condition and, you know, through their scent, they attract males, the male mates. From all that we know, you know, based on captive breeding, it's a pretty spectacular, you know, lively uh, interaction because they're solitary animals and they basically don't want the other to get close, but they have to because that's how they're going to reproduce. And then they part ways and the female has her kittens or cubs. And so the only time you'll see an adult with other individuals uh, in terms of a big cat is when she's with her, you know, one or two, in, in the case of jaguar, one or two kittens and until they are, you know, independent at about a year or so. So that's something that we're just starting to find out. And, and it's actually really pretty rare to catch the kittens or the cubs on the cameras. So usually we just see the solitary animal. God is a genius storyteller. And the evidence of this is threaded throughout scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're we're in in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, It's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't... I, I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week... Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes, so if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. When I've been watching this show, right, you see a lot of humans horsing around with these animals, and I know that not all animals are able to domesticate, but I'm just curious, like, What am I supposed to make of these people on the show that say they have these very close relationships with these animals? And of course, it's all predicated on the belief that they're also very dangerous, right? (laughs) And not really able to be tamed. 
obviously it takes a little bit of shall we say showmanship or show off ship you know to go into that situation with an animal that's quite dangerous and just horse around with it there are people who do this professionally as trainers you know for example for animals that are used in movies and they do have a relationship they do have a very i would say strong relationship with that animal because they have to be able to control that animal if they can't control the animal that would be disaster you know that really takes a lot of knowledge of animal behavior I mean, I can't really speak for how much knowledge of animal behavior Joe Exotic has. He obviously has had to have enough understanding of the behavior of those tigers to be able to survive. And so, I mean, I, I would respect that. I, I mean, my, my, my take on this is that in, in the vast majority of those cases you're talking about, it's not that the cat just loves the trainer or the Joe Exotic or whoever, but it's because they're, they've learned through a conditioning process of punishment and reward that that they better act this way or it's going to go badly for them it's it's a learning process and that's kind of what what taming is you know think about people say oh it's a tame kitty it's a tame you know tiger well you know no it's not it's it it may be tame which means it's learned to behave itself because of you know conditioning which is basically learning how to avoid aversive behavior and how to do behaviors that will will elicit a reward it's still a wild animal by the way, they st still have a very strong predatory instinct. I think that what you always have to keep in mind is that they may look like they're just playing and having a you know a jolly good time, but that trainer or whatever has got to really know what they're doing and really control the situation because it is a wild animal that's totally capable of completely destroying that person if if things get out of hand. So don't do this at home. Is <laughs> Right. Is a message, you know. Right. So I'm curious about how, you know, as someone who studies this stuff, like, and you mentioned that your, you know, your study of animals kind of led you, or being at least in nature, kind of led you to understand or seek out who God is more. Um, interested in hearing a little bit more about that, and just also how how do you view right now your relationship between, or the relationship between these animals that are out there in the earth and and us humans who are also out there in, in, in the earth. My personal experience, I think, has just been, I mean, look, I, I grew up in New York City. So, I mean, I'm not going to make a claim that I grew up in harmony with nature, you know, nature boy. And I, you know, I just always wanted to be in harmony with the with these animals. I mean, I grew up in Washington Heights in New York City. And again, the wildlife was the squirrels and pigeons. Uh, that was a mega, that was a megafauna. <laughs> and then the the uh, cockroaches uh, inside. As I had opportunity, because we would go out to, so this is a little bit of biography, but my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, uh, would go up to New Hampshire every summer. He was actually a pastor in Jamestown, New York, and then he would kind of switch churches and uh, preach at a church in Hillsboro in New Hampshire. And so we go to New Hampshire in the, in the summer. And of course, for a kid that grows up in the inner city, to go to New Hampshire was like, Oh, this is like paradise, you know, and we would stay either on a lake or at a, a big old kind of colonial farmhouse. There's a picture, and I and actually remember this. Uh, there was a gate when we first started coming there, and I climbed up on the gate. On the other side of the gate were all these cattle, and I just kind of, you know, looking at this big old cow, and there's a picture of me. And, you know, that really was my first, along with the uh, the big cat block in the Central Park Zoo, you know, my first encounter with, with animals. And then as I had opportunity to go hiking and to spend time in the bush and in the wild. 
various opportunities as I, I grew up. And I would see animals, you know, that, that were wild. And the awe and wonder that you mentioned before, Ted, I think that, that that's part of that whole thing. It's like, wow, this is, that's, that's really cool. You know, I mean, I can't, it's, it's kind of hard to describe, you know, just been something that's, that's been very pleasing and very fulfilling to just, just be able to see kind of nature and see wild animals in their element, which is something that sadly a lot of, a lot of folks growing up don't see because we're an increasingly urbanized society. You know, over 50% of the world population lives in a city and most of them aren't going to see that. One more thing to add to that is that for most of most of the time I've been doing animal behavior research, my research has been largely non-invasive, meaning that it's been mostly behavioral observation. So, you know, I'm standing, I'm sitting on a on a bluff overlooking a, a meadow, or maybe in a, a vehicle looking at bison or whatever. Maybe I have a telescope that I'm using, whatever. But I'm basically observing, and these observations go on for hours, right? So, spending hours and hours uh, of every day just watching animals do what they do. And most of the time, by the way, animals don't do a whole lot of exciting things. They're not, if you're watching lions, you know, what do they do? 22 hours of the day, they sleep, right? Not terribly exciting. Uh, any animal that you watch, most of the time, they're, maybe they're they're eating, they're certainly herbivores are grazing, they're moving around, they're resting, they're, they're not doing a whole lot, you know? But, and it takes a, it, I don't know, it takes a special kind of person to be able to do that and not get totally bored. And I would say I really ne never got bored. I just liked uh, you know, this is kind of good, harks to Peter Sellers' last movie, but you know, being there, I like just like being there, being there with the animals, feeling like I could kind of, in some way, join their world. There's a lot. Mike, I, I'm I'm curious about how would you say that your research or your animal behavior research has changed how you understood God, uh, how God has made you to be. One of the things that that I I think that that you have to come away with at some point is that. My perspective on life is very limited. You know, all of ours, right? You know, we, we got our plans. We've got the things that, that we want to do. We've got our to-do lists, got our, our aspirations and so forth. But they're actually kind of small compared with the big picture. And one of the, I mean, there's lots of ways to see a big picture, right? For me, I think seeing that big picture was seeing kind of the big picture of of the creation of, of, of nature, of these animals and plants and trees and just this massive tableau, if you will, of, of life. I'm just like a speck in that. I'm like a fly on the wall, just observing those things. And so kind of in that sense, now that's, that's, that's one aspect. That's the aspect that, you know what, you know, God's doing something bigger than just trying to meet my aspirations and make me happy and so forth. There's something bigger there. But also there's this aspect of that, you know, if I can just be there and be a part of, of this thing that God is doing, that's enough. That's more than enough. That's very fulfilling. When I first became a Christian, I, you know, I was, I was kind of a little bit nervous, a little bit scared that God would ask me to do something that I didn't want to do, like go to an urban area, go away from the bush and go away from nature. And in fact, you know, that's what I do. I'm in an urban area. I teach at you know, San Diego at, at a college, but I came to realize that, you know, the greatest joy is being able to fulfill God's purpose for your life, whatever that is. And the thing is, we probably, at least I have precious little understanding of what that is when, when you start out. I think the key is just kind of being open to what uh, doors God opens and trying to see if that's uh, where he wants you to go. You know, 
I'm curious if in your so you started off, you know, looking at these Impala, looking at you know, looking at these things, moving towards highly predatory animals. You know, to me, there is this awe that comes with a, a powerful predator that there's a there's an awe and a terror that. You know the the brokenness, I guess, is 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 the question that I that I often bump up against. Like in my own, when I look at my own self, and like what can I learn about God through other people? Like the the I, I keep bumping up against the kind of brokenness of the world, my own sinfulness, a lot of those kinds of things. When I see you know large predators, part of it is less that I see the brokenness of the world, and more I guess I guess I understand a little bit of that. The fear of God, in some ways, not necessarily like I can see why that why some of these animals were you know idolized in, in in various and sundry ways over the years. That there is this thing bigger than myself that can destroy me. That kind of stops that that I, I kind of understand that that fear of God that is not like a uh, well I guess you know there's a reason C.S. Lewis chose. <laughs> This is you know, the thing we've been avoiding. Uh, there's a reason C.S. Lewis chose a lion for Aslan, right? There's a reason you got this kind of lion of Judah idea that there's that there is this kind of fear, joy, awe, and not uh, uh, not a fear that you want to run away from, but a fear that you want to get closer to with some of these big cats. Uh, I wonder, you know, because my experience has been mostly with you know the the, the lions because they're a little bit easier to see, and, and I spent some time in, in Kenya. I wonder if the elusiveness of uh, of some of these uh, cats and trying to suss out what are these animals like is 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 somewhat a little bit like trying to the elusiveness of the elusiveness of God. He's he's very approachable, but but yeah, he is very mysterious in this in this way too. I was, was reflecting on. I wonder if there's there's anything along those lines for you. Those are observations that that I can I can definitely identify with. Yeah, and I think that's what in my when I went to Zimbabwe as as a PhD student, I was you know, agnostic, and I wasn't looking for God and certainly wasn't looking to become a evangelical Christian or anything like that. And, and that just happened. It happened through just realizing that there was a bigger picture than just me, that when I didn't know whether to call that God or nature or something else, but came to realize through other people the, the proper names and, and that this is the God of the universe. But there's also, I think, this this sense. So one, one of the things that is interesting about, and I'm not sure folks always understand this, about doing conservation work, which is what I do. Basically, all the, the survey work that we do is, it's got a very applied purpose in, in so far as trying to know what kind of animals we have in these, these mountains so that we can better protect them. But you can't do conservation without people. And I'm going to swing back to God here, but you can't do conservation without people. You can know all about every jaguar in the forest and not be able to save them because for whatever reason, people don't value them and they're not protected or a habitat is lost or what have you. Just doing research is not enough. It'll never be enough. Conservation, which in, in my world is how I see caring for creation, caring for God's creation, is conservation of his creatures and his ecosystems. That always involves people. So you don't ever exclude people. People always, and so the work that we do is community-based conservation. We work with local communities. Actually, people in the local communities are actually running our camera surveys for the most part, because we're not there year-round. You've got to teach, got to, got to do my job. We give them equipment and training and empower them to be able to do that research. And then they do it. And then they're in that community. And we sometimes come and go to community meetings and so forth. But then we share that with the community people to try to instill a sense of, you've got some 
incredible creatures, you know, maybe uh, let's let's protect them better and kind of instill that sense of stewardship. That reaching out to other people is something that I, I think is a unique ability that that these animals have. People who maybe would never work with us if we said, hey, we're a bunch of Christians and we want to study some animals are absolutely delighted to work with us because we're going to help them conserve the animals that they really care about. And in, we're just really fortunate that in Costa Rica, there's kind of a conservation ethic kind of ingrained in, in most people now. I mean, people really value that aspect of their of their country, that there's such an emphasis on conservation and sustainability and caring, caring for their, uh, their natural environment. The point here is that, if I could say it this way, that these animals can act as a bridge to sharing God with people and sharing, uh, in some sense, our relationship with people. I mean, I always pray that, you know, in some way, God would shine his light on the people that we work with. We don't select people who, you know, kind of fit our, our criteria. We, we work with people who want to work with us and whoever they are and whatever they believe. And most people in Costa Rica are nominal Christians, but that doesn't mean they have a relationship. I think that that's another way of showing that, look, if we love the creation, that speaks of a love for the creator. I think that the two go together. They're kind of this organic whole that can really speak into the lives of, of people that we that we care about. And we want them to know God better. Awesome. Also, that, that reminds me of, a, of an article we recently ran in CT. Maybe we could get in the show notes from about a year ago on uh, God-loving uh, protective species and uh, and the poachers who kill them and, uh, and the relationship in, in both. That article was so good. We'll definitely link to it. Mike, just to wrap our conversation and put you on the spot for a little bit. Is there a really good big cat story that you have where you spotted one or had an interaction with one that you would want our listeners to know? Okay, this is the best story I, I can give you. And being put on the spot on short notice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Sorry. Uh, I kind of gave you a little bit of, of the backstory that in 2010, we were told, actually 2009, we were told that our bison research was going to wrap up. And so in 2010, I show up with my students in Costa Rica, and it's like, you know, this is an experiment. This is kind of like our pilot study is what we call it, meaning that we have no idea if this is going to work or not. We're just going to give it a, our best shot and see what happens, right? And so we, we show up in this high elevation mountain, mountain community, which is also an ecotourism center. Uh, there's a whole story behind that. The guy, it was uninhabited until the 50s, and the guy and his brother came in, homesteaded it, and then uh, over time was convinced that, that he had to stop cutting down the forest and turn to uh, ecotourism. We show up in this valley. We have 10 cameras, and we're just going to put up some cameras and see what happens. Right? The manager of the field station we worked at, which is called the Quetzal Education Research Center. It's run by Southern Nazarene University. David Hilly and his wife, Sarah, they set up a meeting for us when we first got there. So it's like, okay, I had to kind of try to retrieve my my Spanish. It's all in Spanish. We talked about what we we're going to do. And then as, you know, and the idea was at the end of that period of time, we were going to give a wrap-up report. This is what we've discovered kind of thing. And, and we were there for about eight weeks, I want to say. Well, as the weeks went on, we got lots and lots and lots of pictures of raccoons. And we kind of realized that probably wasn't going to make a very exciting wrap-up meeting with the community. You know, <laughs> it's like raccoons. Yeah, is that all you got? And so, um, you know, getting a little bit desperate here. And so it's it's we're literally down to the wire. It's 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 like a couple days before the community meeting. The whole community is going to come, and we're going to give our report. We, we 
got, you know, lots of pictures of raccoons. And then we get this this picture from one of our cameras. It's actually one of the cameras that was located a little bit higher up on the, on the mountain. And by the way, this is right below the th- third highest mountain in Costa Rica called uh, Cerro de la Muerte, Mountain of Death. We get this picture of this, this uh, puma uh, coming at the camera. It's a beautiful picture. Still uh, looking at his lovely picture. Say yes, yes, we've got this picture. Okay, now we can, you know, now we can go forward and have something to show them. And so we prepared for our meeting, and uh, you know, as we always do, my students and and I had you know little things to say, try to give a little program, keep people entertained, and so forth, and, and give them something to inspire them and and benefit them. The morning, so this is going to be in the evening. So the, that morning, one of my students said, "Hey, well, you know, let's just check the cameras one more time." I said, "Okay, sure." So he goes out. He and his the other student, Jared, so this is Caleb and Jared, they go out and they run the entire, in about an hour, they're back. You know, they run the entire camera transect. And they come back and we look at the pictures and the same camera where the Puma was, we put it, we put in the chip, we look at it. There's this big black, what I initially thought was a big black dog. I said like, oh man, got this dog on the trail, goodness sake. And then we look at it again, it's like, well, that ain't no dog. And we look at it again, it's like, that's a melanistic path, uh, jaguar. And I sent it to a, a, a colleague at one of the universities, and he confirmed, yes, that's a jaguar. We actually showed it that evening, and it was electrifying, to say the least, because we're talking about they had never, ever seen pictures from the forest of the animals there to actually see a jaguar. You know, maybe a, a puma would have been good, right, and was good, but a jaguar, and not only a jaguar, but a, a black jaguar, a melanistic jaguar. In fact, people got so excited that people started leaping up, and this is how it works in Costa Rica. People started talking, and they had this whole conversation, a discussing go- discussion going on, like, oh well, you know, maybe we should tell, maybe we shouldn't have uh, tourists on the trail. Maybe it's dangerous. Maybe we shouldn't go on the trail. What should we do? What should we do? You know, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. and then. Just by serendipity, the administrator of the national park that's closest to there was there and attending. I don't think he ever came after that, but that, that first time he came and he stood up and he said, you know, let me assure you, there's never been any any report of jaguars attacking people. This is no problem at all. And everyone calmed down. Oh, good. good. Oh, we've got jaguar and we've got puma. And wow. Uh, ever since that time. Those community meetings are much anticipated, and we just love the relationship we have with the people there. And it's all because of that black jaguar that we got on that camera at the 11th hour on the last day before we were about to have our meeting and then take off. So well, thank God you so that. much for, for sharing <laughs> that story. Great. And I'm glad you got your shot. Maybe you can send us a picture of it and we can share it with people too, because I'm oh, sure they'd like to see I would, that. I would be glad to. All right. So if people have feedback for us, they can send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We are also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments. We ask everyone to share something that has brought them joy. Recently, Ted, you're up first. Well, let's see. Last week I talked about preparing for my sermon, and that did, in fact, go well. So thanks for your prayers on that, Morgan, and anyone else. I'm, that was a precious moment, but I used up sermon prep last week. So, you know, I will just say playing board games with my family during this time of isolation has been... So my son and I played a great version of a uh, great game of Scythe yesterday. The one we've been playing as a family, all four of us, is a game called 
Machi Koro Legacy, where you are building these uh, Japanese towns. Uh, well, you know, I guess I don't know if they're Japanese towns, but there's a kind of a kawaii type art on this thing. It's nice is that each game builds upon the next game. That's what the legacy game means. Is you kind of play through a, a series of, I guess, probably ten games or so, and and each game changes uh, each to the rest. And that's been great. That's been something that all four of us have have really enjoyed between Mario Kart tournaments here at the Olsen home. Trying to make the most of this isolation time. This is spring break week, so without homework to occupy the kids, we're having to get a little bit more creative. But but we're having we're having a good time over here. People can find you on Twitter at Ted Olson. They can find me on Twitter at Ted Olson if they if they wish. And sometimes you'll post about animals and live cam cams that you like watching. Oh, you, you know what? You know Ted Ted Olson's list of animal live cams. Uh, the the best big cat cam. There are a number of captivity uh, big cat live cams which I, I I don't really look at. Safari Live, which I've recommended in the past, is now rebranded as a as Wild Earth, and they have daily safaris that go out in South Africa. There are lions on occasion there. There are leopards. There are hyena. Any, any any number of animals on there, and uh, not they're they're wild. They're uh, not in captivity, and it's just like going on a on a safari. Uh, but we'll link to uh, that in the show notes. It's great. So yeah, that should have been my precious moment. Thanks for <laughs> thank thanks for letting me not end the the podcast without all you I listeners. All you listeners should know that I, I I bore the heck out of my staff with wild cam or with yeah live nature cam recommendations on a, on a constant basis here. So now you all can put up with it as well. My precious moment this week was last night, my roommate and her boyfriend and I had a campfire or fire, I don't know, put a, had a fire on the fire pit. And that was the first one we've had in about six months. It was, to be honest, actually pretty, pretty bitter. It was pretty bittersweet in the sense of it felt very normal. And yet the larger world does not necessarily feel normal right now. And so that kind of juxtaposition was really intense in my mind. And it also made me so grateful that we have a backyard and a fire pit and the ability to enjoy things like that and not feeling just cooped up in my house right now. And you so, did marshmallows? No, it was just low key. No, it was a lot of just fire. like really intense staring at the blue parts of the fire. That <laughs> is key. That is key. But it was great. Mike, your turn. South Africa has just gone into a lockdown mode where people aren't even allowed to leave their house. Now, my my wife, Emma, she was born in Zambia, so she's a white African. She grew up in Zimbabwe, and her two sisters, one is in Spain now, one is in Cape Town area. And so the so Liza, the one in the Cape Town area, texted maybe a week ago saying that she had basically lost her most of her income, and her husband had lost most of their income because of the shutdowns. They were going to have this lockdown, and she boards horses. I think she's got about twenty horses that she's boarding right now, and she didn't have enough feed for them. You know, she and so we wanted to send them some money, and, and she said, "No, don't send money. Just you know, we'll just see what the Lord does. You know, just pray for us." And so we said, "Okay." We prayed, and we prayed. You know, Lord, just bring the food right right to their door. And so she, so Liza is out. This is like a few hours before lockdown is going to begin, and they're not they're not going to be able to leave at that point. She's running around trying to get last minute supplies, make sure they're as prepared as they can. And she gets back, and she she goes into the stables, and she notices there's a little bit more hay there than she thought was there, but she thinks, oh, well, I guess that's how much there was. And then she comes back again. And she realizes there is some more. There's like twice as much hay as, as I, I left. 
with. And she gets started starts to get really panicky because she thinks, well, it's a mistaken delivery. It's actually for one of my neighbors and my neighbor's going to need it. So she starts frantically calling all the neighbors. Hey, is this yours? And if no, it's not mine, not mine. And finally, she calls someone, finds out it was actually one of her clients. And she's been teaching the daughter to, to ride for the, she's kind of a horse whisperer, teaching the daughter to ride for the last five years. And she just, you know, she said, you know, I just felt the Lord say that you needed that feed. And so she had her husband drive all that uh, feed and forage for the horses out there and drop it off. You know, the need was met. And, and it's just, you know, praise the Lord, you know, because how else were those those horses going to get fed? So that's that was my precious, uh, our precious moment to see how God faithfully answered that prayer and as he always does in amazing ways. And I am, I have a, uh, a website is mostly research stuff with pictures, which is mikemooring.squarespace.com. There's a hyphen between Mike and Mooring, so mikemooring.squarespace.com. And I've also got stuff on my Point Woman Nazarene University webpage as well. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. Please go on Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show. You can also find it wherever you like getting your podcasts. We are there. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript is done by Boonmi Ashola. The music is by Sweeps. If you would like to support our publication, please do so by becoming a subscriber. You can do so by going to orderct.com slash podcast. That's orderct.com slash podcast. We will see you all next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.